All right, so we're in Revelation 11, and I wanted to be able to come back to this uh, wonderful diagram that Gabe uh, drew up for us to be able to catch us up to both how we're seeing this book, but then also where we are at this moment in Revelation 11. Both the big picture and also the details matter when we're going through Revelation, okay? So where we're at right now is we're in this series of woes. In fact, we're going to be seeing the last woe out of three, which are part of the trumpets. It's trumpet five, six, and seven. So if you see on the diagram, the trumpets are some things that, as we've been teaching, projecting out of the seventh seal when it was open, and then out of the trumpets, then it'll be amplified even more with the bowls. Okay, so we're kind of in the middle, but then as you're seeing them, things kind of getting bigger and getting closer, in a way, it's almost like you're upping the power of a microscope, you know, when you're in lab. You know, something that might look a certain way to you at a certain distance would get a lot closer in a lot more detail and a lot more, you know, kind of a, kind of graphic as you get even more closer exponentially. And that's what we're finding here, because what is judgment becomes greater judgment, but what is praise and what is worthy becomes greater praise and greater worthiness. And so that's where we're at now. And actually, as we're coming then to the end of the trumpets, then you're going to find a highlighting of both, that there is greater judgment in terms of the details that are being released and, and seen. But then there's also uh, the sense of praise that comes from God's people in particular and from the elders uh, that are seen in this vision that is not there before. So when you looked at the end of the seventh seal being opened, there was like a, a moment of silence. Um, you know, the Bible describes in, in Revelation 8, 1, it being about half an hour, but I mean, not so much like 30 minutes, but the idea is that there was a, a, a pause and there was a silence. And then prayers were, you know, received and offered up as incense and so on and so forth uh, as worship to God. But when we go into this trumpet and the end of this version of things and this vision of things, you actually see something vastly different. It's not silence, but it's exuberant praise and singing. Now, earlier in the uh, announcements, you guys talked about gospel night, even though it's gospel afternoon. Uh, but I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm thinking one of the things you might do would be some kind of singing. I mean, if I'm wrong, let me know. But I think there's going to be some kind of singing. And then I think there's going to be some kind of proclamation of the gospel. And then there'll be things that fill in between, right? Well, you're going to see actually a place for that in what we're going to look at today. Why is there singing amongst God's people? Because that is a response to the presence of God. It is a response of grateful people towards a gracious God. But then what is then the, the objective foundation and source of true rejoicing? It is actually the gospel that allows sinners to be found and reconciled to God, that allows sinners to be rescued and saved by a mighty Savior in this life, but then also for eternity. And so what you're seeing here is a picture going ahead, but then what's going ahead actually then reminds you of the gospel and the standing that you have now, which then leads you to praise. It leads you to proclaim, and it leads you to pray. Okay, so... Um, Everything's happening with greater intensity, focus, and detail, and we are looking then at the seventh trumpet as we're going deeper in to what the end looks like, okay? So let's go ahead and look at the first verse of this passage, verse 15. I'll go ahead and read it for us. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever." And ever. You'll find a couple of things here that'd be helpful to distinguish. There's two references to kingdom. A kingdom, the rule and reign of something, there's two references to it. There's the kingdom 
of the world. Let's look at that in a moment. And then the kingdom of the Christ, of the Lord. Those are apparently two separate kingdoms. We're going to see what each one is briefly, and then we're going to see the connection between the two, because that would help us to see what this vision is trying to communicate to John. What does this transfer look like? What does this transition from kingdom of the world to kingdom of Christ look like? And where are we in the middle of all of this? Okay, so let's look at the kingdom of the world. Well, you don't have to look really far in something else that was written by John to be able to have a little bit of clarity as to the kingdom of the world. Uh, just go ahead and you know keep uh, your finger in Revelation. But if you want to turn with me to First John chapter two, written by the same guy, so I chose this on purpose so that there's continuity there. But when you see First John chapter two, you'll see him actually describe both the context, but then also a definition of the world, the kingdom of the world. So First John chapter two, I'm going to read from verse fifteen, same verse fifteen through seventeen, and let's see what he says here about this. Starting in verse 15. Oh, sorry. First John. First John chapter 5 or 2. Verses 15 to 17. Oh. I'm not very good at Bible reading, really. All right. Do not love the world, okay? World or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is the kingdom of the world. It's not the kingdom of our God, okay? For all that is in the world, what is it? The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What is this world? The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The things that you see, the things that you covet, the things that are temptations, to walk away from God and to pursue sin, the, the ways in which your heart thinks that it is self-sufficient without God and it is better and greater than other people. That represents the world. And that was actually really the, the cause of the fall of Satan in that he did not think he needed God. He rebelled against God. And it's that self-sufficiency and that desire for the glory that God has and receives and, and deserves that then led to his fall. So that is the world. And so the kingdom of this world then is one in which in following Satan, the prince of this world, that you're rebelling against God and you're pursuing sin. And it is not how God intended for his image of bears to live and to be. The kingdom of the world is one in which people are broken. One in which Sin might be idols, it might be pursued, but is not satisfying. The kingdom of the world is one for which the things that you want the most are the things will not last, will not last very long. They won't last forever. They are superficial and they will fade away. But yet we want them. Yet we need them. You know, you don't have to follow sports very far to see how the kingdom of this world, if that's all you're living for, it's one high of another, one low after another, but every championship passes, every all-star fades, you know, every glory is superseded by someone younger and greater and stronger. That's the kingdom of this world. Not that sports or other achievements are bad, but it's simply perishing. It is superficial. It is not lasting. It is far from enduring or eternal. 
So that's one kingdom, and that's going to end someday, okay? But then it's going to be given into the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Now, when you see the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ, uh, you'll find here both God the Father, the one who made everything with the, you know, the Son and the Holy Spirit, but then also his anointed one, Jesus the Messiah. And we find that Jesus then has come into the world, and he is the Christ, but in his death and resurrection, there is something that was done that is not the full culmination of a kingdom yet, because our world is still filled with lots of brokenness and sin. But yeah, there's going to be one day in which Jesus will reign, and he will reign completely and have overall control of everything, that there will be no more sin, no more brokenness, and there will be no more rebellion against God. There will be a face-to-face -face presence and interaction relationship with God, between God and his children. That is the culmination of the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. To be a king means that you have both people to be under you and are subjects, but then you also have the reign over their lives. So then to be subjects of the king means that you belong to the king, but then you also you obey the king. That's not there yet, but if you're a Christian today, you can find that that desire or that desire to obey or that willingness to follow Jesus, that's there. We just don't do it perfectly. And so how do the two come together? Well, there's different ways of viewing this, but I think the simplest way of seeing it is one by which we take the Bible at its word. I'm going to turn now to another passage to start a Revelation 1. Okay, just from seeing what John has written to introduce uh, this vision, I think we're able to get an idea of how the kingdom of the world comes together with the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ. Okay, so this is Revelation 1, 4 through 8. He's introducing this vision. He's sharing about who it's for. Um, and we went through this in the beginning of the series. But I'll go and read it from verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Remember that phrase. Who is, who was, and who is to come. Okay? Three parts. And for the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Okay, so he's a greater king than the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What is John acknowledging? John is saying that there was a king that came. His name is Jesus. This king is the greatest king of all. And this king has created a kingdom of people that then are obeying him and are following him and are given the right to become priests, people that have access to God to become his children, to become his subjects. John is speaking as somebody who is already a part of this kingdom. He is not saying the kingdom is after me or beyond me or 2,000 years from now or 2 million years from now. He's saying that the kingdom has started. It was ushered in by Jesus. I am in the kingdom now, and so are many of you. He's talking to the seven churches and saying, you guys are in the kingdom now. That the king reigns and the king rules because he has risen from the grave. Death could not hold him. The king is alive. And he has a vision for you. And he has a message for each of you, seven churches. But he's not done. Verse 7, the kingdom is established, but it's not done. It's not full. Because why? This is what is coming. Verse 7, 
Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. That phrase is repeated again, three parts. Who is, who was, and who is to come. So there's a culmination then of this kingdom. It's not fully realized yet because it is still overlapping with the kingdom of the world, right? Each of us, if we are striving to, to follow Jesus and to put our faith in him and to make decisions and pursue priorities that are honoring to him, we know that every day is a struggle for us. God's not done with us, but it's actually in that struggle that we can identify ourselves with being a part of his kingdom and that he is our king and that he is one that we can trust, but he's not done with us and he's not done with the world. Over time, in the future, there will be a complete handing over and the conclusion of the kingdom of this world and Satan and all of those who are against God will be thrown to lake of fire. And then the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ will go on forever. Okay. But we're not there yet. We are in an already but not yet situation. Both kingdoms are existing. Both kingdoms are kind of duking it out with each other in terms of who the subjects and who the faithful and who the followers are. But then God is in control and ultimately he will return and he will bring about the culmination of that kingdom in its fullness and its perfection. If that sounds confusing, let me try to maybe bring up an example that might help. All right, so uh, who are the seniors we have in this room? Peter, yes, because you're graduating. Jeff, Chris, okay. I know some of your stories better than I know others, but maybe this story relates to you. Now you're seniors, which means you're registered, you're taking classes, right? Like, even if you're barely, you're taking classes, right? But some of you guys I know already know what's gonna happen after you graduate. I know some of you are going to be going to further schooling. Um, so you're, you know, admitted to somewhere, you're looking forward to something, you probably are thinking about, you know, going to have to move, you know, some decisions. Some of you may already have, um, you know, the, the, the promises of, of a new job, right? So you know that you're going to be working somewhere at another location with this group of people and maybe with this boss. So it's ahead of you, you know it's coming, but you're still students right now. You're not done with your classes. As much as you'd like to have senioritis, you're not done. You don't have a degree until you are finished, until you are matriculated and you are completed with your course of study. But yet you have something to look forward to, don't you? And you're already making plans for it, aren't you? You're thinking about what life might look like when there is no more school or when there's different school. You're looking ahead and by your status, you are admitted, you are hired, you are accepted by the thing ahead. But you're not there yet. You, you could try to act like you're there yet, but you still gotta finish school because that's what needs to be completed. That's what the two kingdoms kind of look like. Not that college is like the kingdom of the world or something, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but there's this already but not yet and that you know with growing intensity and clarity what is ahead of you but yet you know that this life is not done yet. You know that this season is still needing to, to be finished well. And you know that there'll be struggles and wrestling. And as much as you, you know, would wanna just throw it all and just move forward, to, no, you wanna finish. 
you want to be responsible and then you want to you know kind of complete this phase of things so even though you secured a future or god secured the next season for you you're going to prepare to finish school well that's the idea okay there's an overlap already but not yet kingdom of this world kingdom of the lord and his christ Okay, but what are you ultimately looking forward to? You're looking ahead to the next thing, aren't you? And you're living for the next thing, being willing to let go maybe of the particulars and some of your college rhythms and priorities. Say, you know what, no, no, I'm, I'm a working person now. I'm a grad student now, and I got to think about how to prepare for that. And so you do. And you plan and you pray. And that's the relationship between those two kingdoms, already but not yet. So then as a Christian, you should find that, okay, so that means that I'm in the simple world, but this is not my final home, but yet how do I then make this life count? And you should be thinking these things already. Well, let's go ahead and keep going here and see what happens next. So starting from verse 16, John records this, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. You know, the, 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 the Bible, especially when it comes to these books that are related to like visions and symbolism, you know, numbers are really important, right? We've seen how sevens, which is a number in the Bible that points to fulfillment and completion and perfection, that's being used here over and over. Seven this, seven that, seven this. That's important. You see the number 40, super important in the Bible, okay? Uh, in terms of completion, in terms of seasons and phases, 40 is pretty important. Well, a really key number in both Old Testament and New Testament is the number 12. So you have the 12 tribes, you have the 12 sons of Israel, right? They are the foundational peoples of God's people. And then you have the 12 apostles who Jesus chose and called and had around him for three and a half years. And even when one betrayed him, another replaced Judas. So there's two sets of 12 in the bookends of Christ, one calling and prophesying his coming, and the other being able to carry on and be disciple makers because of his resurrection, you see the number 24. Elders are leaders. Elders are people of authority. And there's 24 of them, you know, possibly two sets of 12 to, again, show the completeness of God's plan in his covenant with people. So these 24 elders who are leaders, what do they do? You know, they are in places of authority in this vision, but then they start praising God. They start singing. They start worshiping God. How do I know that they're singing? Well, look at what is being described here. In fact, in probably a lot of your Bibles, it's kind of put into like this weird paragraph kind of thing. The idea is that it kind of sounds like a song, and it probably was. It was probably something that was passed on. It was something that was common, but it's kind of you know, meant to be sung, kind of like how the Psalms are written in a certain way, uh, so that it's meant to not just be, you know, read or memorized, but it's meant to be sung. You see here then the song that they sing, and let's look at the message that is communicated through these words. So starting in verse 17, this is what the song lyrics are. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was and who is to come. No. Who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So why do these elders representing the covenant peoples of God, why are they singing to God? One, because they're grateful. We give thanks to you, 
last week, you know, Pastor Gabe talked about, you know, just all these crazy things going on in terms of judgments and everything else that's happening. We give thanks to you with the mess. But see, God's people are in messes, but it doesn't mean that they're messed up people. They can see God's hand. And at the end of the seven trumpet, at the end of the culmination of something that God's doing, right, they can give praise. They can give thanks because guess what? God is finally here. He has arrived to bring about the answer and the solution and to make things right. They've been waiting for a king. The king is here. Notice in the middle part of verse 17, who is, who was, and in your mind, you should be thinking who is to come because that's how Christ was introduced in chapter one and also in chapter four. That last part is gone. Why? Because he's here. There is no who is to come. He's here. The king is here. No more fear because the king is here. You don't need to look towards who is to come because he is here. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who is to come. He is the Almighty, like we read in Revelation chapter 1. And not only is the king here, he's fine at the end of verse 17. You have taken your great power and begun to reign. The king is ruling in the way that he has always said he would rule. With power, with authority, with perfection. You know, when you see this, it should be really encouraging um, and, and really awe-inspiring. Um, I mean, whenever you have a, a problem, whether it's in your you know, life or, you know, in your workplace or in school or just even something that, you know, you really need someone's help in. When help finally comes, that's a joyful thing. That's a grateful thing. Uh, whether it's someone you know, coming in to provide you, you know, with, with, you know, that final kick to finish a project or that answer or that paradigm to be able to address a problem or even being able to solve a particular, you know, crisis, you know, in a friendship or, be able to you know, come up with an, an answer uh, to a dilemma. That, that person and, and what that person brings to the situation, that's welcomed and that's delighted in. And you see here then that when the king finally arrives in his fullness to reign, not just to be here, but to reign and to take his rightful place, people rejoice. Let's go on to verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. What do you find here? That God has come, and when he assumes his rightful position and authority as king, when Christ comes as the Alpha Omega and rules the way that he should, then justice is delivered. True justice against evil, that God is going to demonstrate that he does punish evil and he does avenge the righteous. And the righteous are not people that live perfectly. The righteous are people that have put their trust in him, right? And so God will come and do what is ultimately right. But you'll find here too that the time for the dead to be judged means that there is going to be resurrection and judgment for everyone. Everyone will be raised. Everyone then will be judged. And that's the reason why we each have something to think about. There is an upcoming resurrection of the dead for everyone who has died, not just for the Christians, not just for the non-Christians, 
There's a resurrection for all people, and there's a judgment for all people. And how you will be judged is related to your trust and your faith in the king who is to come. Okay, But there's a resurrection for all, and this is a part of how justice is done for all peoples for all time. I really like this uh, you know, one part where it's a series of phrases that describes God's people because he talks about rewarding them. So he's rewarding, you know, this is part of him being, you know, just in that he rewards his people, uh, people that have uh, put their trust in him. Um, but this is not because of anything they did. It's simply because, you know, they are people of the king. Here's the phrases, your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, both small and great. I like all those descriptions because I think we find ourselves in there somewhere. You know, we're not all the same, but we can find ourselves in here if our faith is in Christ. We might have different spiritual gifts. We might have different uh, you know, leadership roles. We might have different maturities in our faith and understanding of the Bible and theology. But if we fear God's name and we put our trust in him, then we're amongst his people. And that's a beautiful thing because God stands for his people. He avenges the righteous and he punishes evil. In the beginning of verse 18, you find the short phrase, the nations raged. And that's a direct reference to Psalm 2. So I'm going to go ahead and just take us there real quick. Okay, So this is Psalm 2 in its entirety. Um, I'm going to read it. Feel free to, you know, you can read along as well. But if you want to just close your eyes and just listen. And listen to how these two passages kind of pair up together. How Psalm 2 really informs Revelation 11 uh, in terms of ultimately what God does and what has led the story to this point. So starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You can almost take this entire psalm and just throw it into Revelation 11. And everything connects. It's wonderful to see how Christ truly is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies and expectations and hopes for how God will appoint a king, anoint a king to rule over his people and to avenge his people against those who are against him and his righteousness. I love how it even says, kiss the son, lest he be angry. And of course, at the time, people aren't thinking of Jesus in particular. 
But when you see how Jesus fulfills the Messianic prophecies and what he came to do and what he actually did and how he sits at the right hand of the Father and how he will return in fullness and in judgment and in righteousness to be able to bring together a transition from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of the Son, this passage is amazing in terms of how it fits. You know, the desire of God's people is ultimately for the coming of Christ. He is the mighty winner. He is our rescuer. He is the true champion. Christ is the goat. He's the one that we should be longing for to save us and to rescue us. And Revelation 11, that they're getting that glimpse of it. And those 24 elders then respond in this exuberant praise. But it's not a praise that's like all filled with emotions and kind of, and that's it. Although, you know what, if, if we think that praise doesn't have emotions, then we missed out. Praise has a ton of emotion if your heart is directly connected to it and your mind is shaping exactly what you are praising God for. It should be filled with emotion. But it's not just emotion because the words that they were singing were theological truths and gospel promises and hope that has become realized. And so they respond in praise. But I just love that the bulk of this passage and the bulk of the end of trumpet number seven in this chapter is actually centered around this song. Now this week, um, I, I did something that I don't think I planned to do ever. And I'm not quite sure exactly uh, what went down, but um, I ended up uh, going there at the end of it all anyway. But um, my, my oldest son this week, he went to a concert at the Forum. It was by a group called Twice. Oh, See, I have no idea what that means. So, <laughs> but apparently it was kind of cool, but he went with a couple of his uh, friends and it was like such a big deal. And I, I mean, I went to Forum before because the Lakers played there and that was cool, but I don't know about this. Uh, but you know what? Um, he yeah, it was turned out to be late now. I didn't. We didn't get home till like twelve thirty because I picked him up um, with his friends. But there was one thing I noticed about him uh, when he got into the car, and he didn't talk. He doesn't talk much anyway. I, I get that. But when he was trying to talk, he had no voice. Mom, oh. what? I can't hear you. What? And it's because he had been screaming and singing for three hours straight. Apparently, that's what everyone does at those kind of concerts. And so then all, imagine, I, I got, you know, it's like past midnight, I got these, you know, three guys in my car, and they're all trying to, you know, talk to each other. They could not vocalize much, but they were just so excited, and it was so much fun. That's because they've been just singing on the top of their lungs for three hours. I'm, I'm sure twice is cool. <laughs> I, I'm sure they, they got some, uh, you know, pretty... You know, cool beats and catchy songs, but three hours? I mean, that's that's nuts. Um, imagine that and multiply it like a million times. And I'd imagine this is more like what Revelation 11 describes. Seriously, we're not talking about like a three-hour concert by which it might have been, oh yeah, that's the best moment of my life up until this point. But how about like the expectation and the hopes of an entire people through the generations seeing it coming to fruition in reality in the coming of their king imagine what that singing is like and then bring it back 
down to when we sing and start there. So let's not try to rise up to be like other people. I think we've got to calm down and have some self-control because otherwise we'd be too crazy when we sing songs to God because that's the God that we worship and that's the God that we know and love. And I really love seeing how this is put on display in Revelation 11. And you'll see more of this in Revelation, especially as it comes to each part where it comes to an end. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, see the rest of this passage here. It's only one verse, um, verse 19. Okay. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. So that last part is very similar to what you found in Revelation 8 at the end of the seal. So you see that there is definitely a coming together of you know, the telescoping and the projecting and the focus of you know, similar events in greater detail. But there's something very special here about when it says that God's temple in heaven was opened and a reference to the Ark of his covenant. So um, here's some pictures that I have you know, no, no uh, credit to, to have at all. To, I didn't draw those, but they're really pretty. Um, to the left is a picture of the second temple. So this was the temple that the people that would have received Revelation, they would have been most closely familiar with. I mean, the first temple was destroyed and the second temple you know, was built up. And But then by this time in Revelation, that temple was destroyed too. But the people would have been familiar more with this temple in terms of their eyes and their senses, okay? To the right is... A picture of the Ark of the Covenant, a drawing, of course, uh, Ark of the Covenant, and that is more of a first temple reference. Now, what is special about both of these references of the temple and of the Ark? Well, if you look at the left at the temple, um, you see there are a lot of walls, don't you? You see there are a lot of different sections and compartments. And the reason why is because the temple was always constructed in a way to create barriers that then revealed God's holiness. Uh, let me try to make that clear to you, because that might have sounded confusing. You know, something maybe doesn't seem all that special or, or that particularly unique, unless it's set apart from things that are more ordinary, right? So if you have like, let's say a, a black thing in a sea of you know white, then you see the black thing really easily. So, what he had here is there were God is perfectly holy, he's perfectly righteous. The temple is where his glory dwelled. And so there's all these different compartments for which the temple was designed and inspired to be built so that it would be select people that would have access to him. And when he talked about getting to the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, it was only the high priest that was able to be in that room. And the idea was that God's glory was in that space. His presence was in that space. Now, by this temple, there wasn't like that uh, first temple Shekinah glory that was kind of awesome. Uh, that wasn't in that temple as was described in the Bible. Neither was the ark. The ark was not in the second temple. But still, when you got into the innermost sanctum, the holy of holies, where only the high priest, you know, who was chosen and who needed to be of the right bloodline had access, that was where God's presence was. Okay, so there's all these barriers. If you are not Jewish, you can go so far. If you are not a man, you can go so far. And you got to, you know, kind of. But then when it says, when God's temple in heaven was opened, it should connect you to a few things. One is, what did you find in Matthew when Jesus died? The veil was torn. People was able to look into the Holy of Holies. There was this access 
to God that was never there before, at least from human standards. So when you see here God's temple in heaven was open, the idea is not so much to focus on the building, but the idea is that the presence of God is now fully on display and available in its fullness to his people. That's amazing. And if you look on the right, the, the picture of the Ark of the Covenant, um, it, it, it's a pretty standard looking picture. Uh, but when you look at, you know, how you have these two cherubim facing each other, but then that top part, the lid, and underneath it, you had like you know, Ten Commandments, you had like a manna, all these really important sacred objects. Okay, in fact, you, you know, when it was, you know, there in the first temple times, if people touched it, there was recordings of people being judged, put to death, even just, you know, bad things happened because God's presence was actually there. And, and where his presence was um, on this Ark of Covenant was, you see that lid in between the two, two cherubim is what they call the mercy seat. So that is actually where, you know, God would be present there. And that's also where people would be able to give atonement for the sins that they have done. This is where the sacrifices came and so on and so forth. But then God would extend mercy to his people in response to their sacrifice. So when the ark is visible, which by that time, it was just legend. Not that they didn't believe it, but it was so far removed from them. They only knew about the ark because it was in the scriptures. They have not seen the ark as far as we know, right? So they've heard about this ark. They know that it was special. They know that, you know, God, his presence, all of these amazing things and his power, but they've not come anywhere close to the ark themselves, nor they, they probably knew where it was. But then in this vision, not only is the presence of God opened up and put on display for people to see and to be near his ark that symbolized himself and his forgiveness and his righteousness and his mercy was visible to John. Of course, then that ties in with the flashes of light. You know, so it's, this is, you know, scary. God is not like, you know, kind of like just this, you know, a super sentimental, lovey-dovey kind of God. Not He's not Santa Claus, nice guy. I mean, this is the creator of the universe, the judge of all human beings. So he's seriously a God to be feared. But yeah, at the same time, it's juxtaposed next to, man, I've never been this close to God with the temple being open and the ark being visible. I've never been this close to experience and to know God like this. This is what John saw. And this was the response to the king finally coming. So there's both a relationship and a reverence that's on display. There is both mercy and a wrath on display. There's both justice and love on display. And all of that then is actually what shapes us to think, well, if God is like this and God will be coming in this way, what are the implications for us? So real quick, let me share the big idea uh, in terms of at least a uh, means of summing up this passage. Jesus Christ, the anointed king, will rescue his people and reign forever to the praise of God's glory. Okay, that's a big idea if you want to remember it. So Jesus is the king. He's the one that God has chosen. He is God himself. He will rescue and he will reign forever. This is coming. Not fully realized right now. It is coming. The kingdom is coming in that it is the present in that the kingdom is here, but the kingdom is not complete and the kingdom is coming, both present and future. 
Now, here's my one application question then for you. How does the coming and fulfillment of God's kingdom shape the way that you live now? Remember the example that I gave about the seniors that have something to look ahead to, but then you're kind of living for what is ahead, not only trying to, you know, um, become complacent or comfortable in what you're leaving. Um, let me go ahead and, and read the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer, because this is Jesus saying, this is how you should pray. So it's not so much what Jesus prays, this is how we should pray, okay? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's looking for a future coming, but then he's also praying because God is working now. So this is then the request. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How are you living today? Are you living only for the second half? Give us what we need, or maybe, to be honest, give us what we want. Are you living in a way that treats people right? Right? It's, it's not so much, oh, you know, every, what other people can do for me, but how can I demonstrate the love and forgiveness that God has given me and forgive others, especially if they don't deserve it. I mean, that's what Jesus is praying for, right? For us, because we've been forgiven. Steer us away from evil, even if evil is enticing. Steer us away from the kingdom of this world because that's not our home. Our home is not the kingdom of this world, even though we live in the kingdom of this world. That's not our home. So we're praying then that you rescue and you deliver and that you change and grow. I, I love how even in, as Jesus is praying, yes, this is on the front side of the cross. He hasn't gone to the cross yet, but that prayer is meant for us so that after his death and resurrection, we can actually pray this prayer knowing that his kingdom has come and his kingdom will be complete. So God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You can pray for that because you could put your faith in that, that that is what's going to happen. So this should affect in very practical ways that if you, if you see what is coming, how does that impact how you live today? That's the tension, isn't it? Already, but not yet. But each of you guys then are able to honor God by trusting him and obeying him through this tension. And if you're sitting here, you're not a Christian today. In other words, you're, you're looking at this passage like, who is Jesus and why does he matter? Um, you know, please talk to your community groups. Just ask them. No question is too dumb. Ask them, hey, why does it matter that Jesus is king? Why does that matter to me? Um, I mean, what's the big deal? What does that have to do with my sin or my life or my decisions? You know, throw it out there to your community group. You know, talk about it. Um, I think there'll be a lot of good answers uh, that they can share with you from scripture and from their own lives, but also that they can pray for you and walk with you and just encourage you um, to grow deeper in relationship with God. Okay, so let's go and pray. Father, we thank you so much for today, and uh, we thank you, Lord, that we get to conclude this time by responding to you in song and in sharing, and we do pray, then, that you remind us of who you are so that we will respond to you even as feeble as our human responses could be on this side of heaven, that we can respond to you in fullness, in complete adoration, and just giving you the glory 
that you deserve with our words, with our mouths, with our voices, with our hearts. We thank you, Father, that the elders responded to you with these truths, declaring who Christ is and what he has done, and that they did it to the greatest of their affection and their ability. We pray, Lord, that we would respond to you the same. And we also pray, Lord, that you would continue to challenge us and encourage us and remind us of how this tension that we have between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our Lord and our Christ, God, that that's a real but yet normal tension for us. Help us then to help one another, to follow Jesus closer, and to encourage one another and to build each other up in community. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.